Good evening. My name is Omar McDoom, and I'm an assistant professor in comparative politics here at the LSE. And I wanted to, to welcome you here this evening um, to the London School of Economics. And also on behalf of the LSE's government department, this is one of the several topics that we have this year organized as part of the uh, comparative politics lecture series at the Department of Government. This evening, uh, we have Professor Donatella Della Porta, who is a professor of sociology and political science at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. Um, professor Della Porta as research interests are very broad, very exciting topics in comparative politics. She works on social movements, on political violence, on terrorism, on participatory and deliberative democracy. Her list of achievements and accomplishments, well, I'm not going to try to impress you with the, the length of them um, or to embarrass her, but suffice to say that she is very well qualified to talk about the topic uh, this evening. Um, the title of her talk, as you can see, is Social Movements, Political Violence, and the State. And as I was looking at uh, Professor de la Porta's background, uh, this title, in fact, mirrors one of her first books, if I'm correct, published almost two decades ago at this point. So, uh, Professor de la Porta uh, will give us uh, the benefit of her accumulated wisdom over the last two decades on this particular topic. Um, so please uh, join with me in welcoming Donatella. Thank you very much. And uh, it is true, the title is the title of one of my first books, but I'm going to, since I grew older in between, I'm going to present especially results from another book which just came out on uh, uh, clandestine political violence, in which I tried um, something a bit more ambitious than in that previous movement uh, a book, trying to compare very different forms of political violence with one with the others. And what I want to do is to focus especially on one uh, uh, part of this research which looks at the interactions between uh, social movements and the state. And uh, I want to start with um, some illustrations, uh, some pictures uh, of nowadays protests and the ways in which uh, policing of protest uh, is uh, relevant for the development of this movement. I want to do to proceed with some general uh, theoretical uh, reflections uh, about how to address issues of relationship between social movements, political violence, and the states. And uh, uh, I want also to look at the ways in which some forms of repression of protest develops, at their effects, and uh, how we can uh, uh, explain them and what we can expect will be the uh, effects in long term. I think I was here in this same room about one year ago and I was talking about developing development of democracy and uh, in the end of the lectures I want to go back to this because I think that the repression of uh, social movements today is indeed an effect of uh, declining quality of democracy and uh, a risk increasing uh, uh, this type of uh, 
crisis of legitimation. My book is not on Gezi Parks and it's not on the recent protests, but uh, I tried to start reflecting on how uh, these uh, events could be interpreted also in a longer term perspective uh, uh, as uh, following a similar, similar type of uh, mechanisms uh, than the ones that have uh, uh, led uh, social movements and states into dynamic into, uh, of escalations. What was happening in Turkey last summer, uh, Gezi Parks started as a very local type of protest uh, of people opposing uh, some uh, city uh, restructuration in that area. And uh, uh, in the turn of a few weeks, uh, 3.5 million Turkish citizens participated in about 5,000 uh, protests, uh, which tended to move from the uh, local specific type of uh, concerns that had moved the first protesters into issues of democracy, of social justice, and so on. Repression was very strong. 11 people were killed. More than 80,000 people were injured. More than 3,000 people were uh, arrested. But this repression did not stop the protest. Rather, it produced uh, an uh, escalation and a spreading of protest in the old countries. It put together groups that had been uh, not so sympathetic to each other uh, in the beginnings. The more repression increased, the more there was a sort of strengthening of the protest. Police used water cannons and tear gas. It was calculated 3,000 tons of water and 150,000 tear gas canisters. There were several people, who, 800 people who were treated, burned by substances in the water, and 11,000 people treated for the consequences of water cannon. Ukraine, more recently, similar story. Uh, protest starts uh, uh, as um, focus uh, in space uh, and also in uh, the concerns of the participant. There is a strong repression and protests tend to escalate. Not only pro protests tend to spread in the old countries, but it also tend to get support by a large part of the population, uh, 75% of the citizens in Kyiv supported the protest. Eventually, 11 people died uh, until now during the protest, but the protest is spreading. Similar stories could be said about uh, many other protests which followed the uh, uh, first wave of 2011 and uh, brought uh, to explosion of contentious politics, uh, also in countries which seemed uh, um, protected by protest, either because they were repressive regimes or because they were uh, successful uh, economies. And... Uh, what, what can, uh, how can we understand uh, this type of um, uh, processes? 
What I tried to do in the book and what I tried to do today is to see to which extent we can do something that uh, political comparatives not often do, trying to understand uh, how in very different systems, similar type of mechanism can have a high capacity to explain the same uh, uh, type of uh, um, effects. So what I'm uh, uh, trying to um, state is uh, the utility, the uh, positive effects of trying to uh, move from uh, research which focuses on specific areas of concern area studies and so on, into trying to compare not the like with the like, but rather very different types of protest, and see to which extent we can find common mechanism. What I will try to say is that if we want to see what is similar in Brazil, in Bosnia, uh, in the Arab Spring, uh, in the Indignados, in the United States, maybe even in London, uh, we need to make some innovations in our way of comparing. Comparative research has been useful, uh, very useful in the past, comparing especially similar areas. And when you compare similar areas, you can also look at sort of uh, general determinants, which, which are uh, the type of uh, preconditions which produce uh, protest and repression. This is not what I want to do now, because what I would like to do is to try to understand if there is something similar in the way in which democracies and non-democratic regimes react to protest, in the ways in which regimes in Latin America, uh, in North Africa, and in Europe react to protest. This means I'm not trying to explain uh, the general causes of uh, protest and repressions, but rather try to see to which extent we can find similar mechanisms going on. So not degrees of economic development of degrees of democracies, but looking more at the uh, type of effects that repression, for instance, as on citizens uh, uh, which protest in very different type of context, and to see to which extent these similarities uh, can be uh, uh, singled out. It is a bit of a challenge because, as Charles Tilling, a well-known uh, historian and political scientist and sociologist used to say, concepts in the social sciences need to point to detectable phenomenon that exhibits some degree of causal coherence. So my point is, can we look at all these very different events uh, expecting some degrees of uh, um, causal coherence? When we look at uh, Bosnia, Brazil, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Kiev, and so on, uh, are we looking at something similar? And my other answer is yes, to a certain extent, we are looking at something similar. I've been looking at trying to explain uh, the way in which protest and policing interact through the lenses of uh, social movement studies, uh, which uh, I, I think some of you are uh, familiar with. And social movement studies uh, adds... Uh, 
has developed uh, some types of explanations, considering the forms of actions of social movements as a sort of dependent variable. How do we explain when movements use violence uh, or when the uh, use men, movement remain uh, peaceful, when movements spread, and so on? And often these explanations uh, have been uh, um, based on assumptions of causality in which the forms of actions were something that was expected to uh, come out of a series of conditions, a series of pre-existing circumstances. So it was said protests developed uh, with social changes and uh, when there are challenges, and this is true nowadays, most of the protests I've uh, uh, looked at are protests which are targeting a specific forms of capitalism, the crisis of neoliberalism, so there are social changes. Protest is supposed to develop when uh, uh, political opportunities uh, are closed for those who protest, uh, even though there is some hope uh, for, uh, uh, for having some sort of success. Protests are supposed to uh, um, develop when there are organizations, and all this has an effect when it is filtered uh, through some types of uh, conceptions of democracy, of politics uh, among social movements, uh, activists, among the citizens, and so on. This is part of the story. This is part of the explanations. But I would like to go a bit beyond uh, this type of explanations because the more I've been looking at these cycles of protest, at this very intense moment of protest, the more I had the impression that uh, what was important was not only what was there before, but also what happened during the protest. So uh, protest starts, this is true, under certain type of uh, uh, social challenges, uh, uh, political conditions, uh, mobilized resources. But uh, then protests produce their own uh, conditions and effects. If you look at violence, this is uh, also very true. People, uh, scholars, have studied, um, for instance, uh, uh, guerrilla or uh, civil wars. And uh, they usually started with the sort of uh, uh, causal explanations. They started trying to uh, develop um, understanding about uh, uh, which type of social conditions, economic crisis, uh, 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 cultural characteristics did produce violence. But then they went a bit beyond these conceptions of previous characteristics. And I, I will um, read uh, sites from two scholars which, uh, who, with very different perspectives, have studied civil war. One is Tatis Kalivas, uh, and one is Elizabeth Wood. And even though coming the one more from a rational choice type of perspective, the other looking more uh, at uh, values and norms, they both pointed at something which I think is very important in order to understand the development of political violence. Uh, Kaliva said 
Almost every macrohistorical account of civil war points to the importance of pre-existing popular allegiances for the war's outcome. Yet, almost every microhistorical account points to a host of uh, endogenous mechanisms, whereby allegiances and identity tend to result from the war or are radically transformed by it. So not what is there before is uh, the um, complete explanations of the development of political violence, but what happens during the uh, uh, events. Similarly, Elizabeth Wood said, political culture, values, norms, practices, beliefs, and collective identity of the insurgents was not fixed but evolved in response to the experiences of the conflict itself. Namely, previous rebellious actions, repression, and the ongoing interpretations of events by the participants themselves. So once again, what she's saying is not what was there before, but the ways in which protest and repression interacted tended to uh, um, explain the dynamics of the development. And there are many um, type of explanations which I found quite inspiring, looking uh, at the ways in which protest campaigns, protest events are transformative. Uh, uh, William Sewell, who is another historian who had a large effect in the social sciences, uh, uh, studied, for instance, uh, devoted an entire book to the takeover of the Bastille, looking at the ways in which the revolutions was not predetermined, but developed during those very intense moments in which people needed to make decisions, interacted with each other, uh, and uh, um, produced effects, but as a process. So these pictures, I think, is useful, but it is a bit uh, artificial, because it considers the protest as uh, the outcome. While very often protest and the relationship in which they developed are uh, uh, important in producing and reproducing their own uh, conditions. Another book which goes in a similar direct direction is by Mark Basinger on the breakdown of the Soviet Union, nationalist movements in the Soviet Union. And there as well the idea is it's not just preconditions. You have to look at what happens. And this is something which I try to develop in my own approach to political violence in what I call relational constructivist and dynamic, dynamic type of approach. The basic idea is that uh, when you look at the interactions of uh, police and protesters, you are looking at relations uh, in which uh, different actors, complex actors, because also the police and the protesters are uh, complex actors divided inside between different uh, subgroups, interact. Not only, many other actors participate in uh, these arenas. So when we go back to the pictures of Gezi Park or uh, of uh, Euromaidam in Kiev, uh, we have a um, large 
number of actors. You have journalists, uh, you have passerbys, uh, you have doctors uh, who try to uh, protect the protesters, uh, you have politicians, uh, uh, you have movement activists, you have movement activists uh, who have always been movement activists, and you have those who are mobilized for the first time. My uh, assumptions in this book is that if we want to understand what's happening in these events, we have to look at this uh, complex type of relations. Also, another aspect which I think is important uh, in order to try to explain some paradox. Repression increases and people are not afraid. Um, why does it happen? It doesn't always happen. But in these protest events uh, I was talking about and in several of the ones uh, I've studied in the past, what happens was that uh, the perceptions by the people changed during this type of protest. Those who use rational choice perspective says the more people mobilize, the less is the cost of mobilization. And this may be true. But I think that there is uh, something uh, uh, more also uh, in uh, what happens in these uh, squares and intense moment of protest. It is people change. Uh, people who calculated the risk now feel that participating is more of a duty. So these uh, type of e events have also an effect in terms of the constructions of, uh, uh, by the participants of their own role, of their own preferences, of their own identities. And this is something which I've found often cited in interviews and so on. I felt I must be there. I felt it is an historical moment. I felt if I don't go to this protest, even if it is risky, uh, I will uh, have um, difficulties in explaining to my daughter or my son why I wasn't there. And so I think uh, when looking at this type of uh, interactions, it is uh, uh, important to consider the construction of uh, the process by the people, and how some moment change this uh, type of perspectives. And uh, I suggest also that we have to look in a dynamic ways. As I mentioned, looking at dependent and the independent variables assume a static pictures, uh, in which what happens now is determined by what was there before. But in these moments, many things uh, tend to change in a dynamic ways. And what it is important to see is the ways in which macro conditions, um, uh, general degrees of repression and so on, are filtered by the uh, individuals in the course of interactions. It is what sociologists often call causal mechanisms based on the understanding of the linkages between macro level, meso level, uh, the groups of individuals and the individuals themselves. So I, I suggest that in order to complete the pictures, not that the others are useless, but that if we want to understand 
why these paradoxical uh, effects happen, that repression instead than uh, uh, keeping people at home, instead push them in the street and they become more and more, they don't care about the risk. Uh, we, have, we have to understand uh, uh, these uh, um, transformations which happen. I don't want to read all this, but I want to say that uh, in the remaining part, of this presentation, in, in the book I've singled out some of these mechanisms, uh, both developing at the onset of uh, cycles uh, of political violence, explaining the persistence, and then explaining also why cycles uh, uh, end. And I don't know if I can convince this machine to give a light. But <laughs> the other way around. This other. Here we go. Yes. Uh, for for this year, at least, I want to start uh, at the top. There. Ah. Escalating policing. Uh, then I can come in the following years to present the, the other mechanism. <laughs> So, what happens with the policing of protest? Uh, what's happening uh, in these days? What's, uh, what the characteristic of uh, uh, the strategies which have been developed in so many different countries? Research on the policing of protest has singled out some different styles. And we were thinking that we were moving uh, along a sort of uh, scale of uh, civilization. So escalated force, which was uh, uh, a use of uh, um, brutal force to repress protest, uh, seems to be, especially in uh, Europe or um, general, in general in democracies, a memory of the past. Um, what seems to develop, especially in the uh, 80s and the 90s, uh, was a sort of uh, negotiated management. So coercive type of interventions by the police was considered as a sort of last resort. Police knew that demonstrations are a sort of uh, contentious forms of actions. So that some Violations of the laws in public order always happen. But the idea was that uh, the uh, right to protest as a democratic right had to take priority over uh, the control of minor violations of the public order. Um, police developed, police department developed strategies uh, of negotiating uh, public order together with the organizers so of the protest. They hired psychologists, sociologists sometimes, uh, to try to develop moments of brokerage between protesters and uh, uh, police in order to at the same time protect the rights of demonstrations but reduce the disruption produced. And there was information gathering focusing especially on uh, the punishment 
of the offenses. This seems to be a positive development in a narrative in which democracies was uh, 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 going to improve uh, and expand. Uh, this seemed to be uh, the policing of the future. But what we see nowadays is not this type of negotiated management, <laughs> but in many cases, oh, in some cases, we still have negotiated management. But more and more often, uh, we see a different type of strategies, a type of strategies which uh, I'm going to say uh, later on uh, tends to produce escalation. And this is uh, a strategy uh, which uh, goes uh, to a certain extent back uh, to the uh, escalated force of the past. So what we see in the interactions between protesters uh, and policing nowadays is very often mainly peaceful types of protest, which are controlled very often in a very brutal ways. And this not only in uh, hybrid regimes or in uh, repressive regimes, but more and more there is uh, a, a policies, I will uh, uh, say later on also, of zero tolerance. Zero tolerance is considered as good. It was considered as bad before. I came with British Airways today. I was looking at the uh, um, little journals, and they put there, we pursue a policies of zero tolerance. So it seems that it became uh, the positive things to do. It was not this, the same in the past. Because the understanding is uh, zero tolerance means escalations. In order to protect the right to protest, and protest is always something uh, uh, which in the beginning was illegal, which then is barely tolerated, and so on, you need tolerance. But this zero tolerance is more and more promoted, not only by British Airways, but also uh, in uh, the type of attitudes towards uh, the uh, protest. It's a very massive use of police forces. So if you go to uh, um, the, the many accounts of uh, uh, these big protests nowadays, you see massive use of policing to control them. And attempt always to uh, introduce uh, element of incapac incapacitations, that is, red zones. Protesters are either pushed uh, outside of some areas, uh, or they are forced to go into places which are uh, not visible from, uh, from the outside. Uh, very often escalation come, uh, derives, in fact, from, the, from this fight on specific territories. The global justice movements uh, struggled against uh, globaliz neoliberal globalizations through a practice uh, of developing so-called counter-summit. And the strategy was to try to enter in the areas of the, uh, of the summits. And the escalation developed because uh, the fences became higher and higher in order to protect the summits. In 2011, it was no longer so much uh, a strategy of counter-summits, but it was a strategy of occupation of spaces, camps, acampadas, uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, and so on. And the type of uh, policing there was uh, oriented toward evicting 
the protesters from this space. So once again, escalation was uh, uh, developing very often on the basis of zero tolerance on uh, use of uh, states. Also, what happens more and more is that the old ideas that uh, in order to protect the right of demonstrators, uh, peaceful demonstrators, uh, requires uh, open channels of negotiations before and during uh, the uh, protest itself, uh, is not no longer followed in a coherent way by the police. In many of these uh, episodes, uh, uh, either preparation uh, in terms of negotiations was not done uh, or uh, order were given in which uh, some types of uh, uh, positions by the police was imposed rather than uh, negotiated. And then uh, also Snowden uh, uh, teaches here uh, Policing of protest also involves massive collection uh, or, and uh, transnational exchange of information, very often used in an alarmist way. So the type of um, uh, development of escalations uh, is also related on uh, um, total co attempt by the police to realize a, a total control uh, of uh, uh, the demonstrators. And this produces effects. Um, there have been uh, research done, not in the most undemocratic countries, but for instance in the United States, uh, uh, during the Bush years, but also later on, uh, in periods in which environmentalists were considered as the terrorists of the days, and the type of repressions uh, uh, towards them implied also the use of anti-terrorist laws, and this pushed people uh, towards more and more of a mistrust of each other, of the states, concrete type of behaviors like switching off uh, uh, completely the telephone with, before entering uh, uh, into a meeting place, which for sure are not part of uh, the uh, uh, demonstration rights in, uh, uh, in a democratic type of uh, countries. I want to go back to this later on in the debate before you give me the red card. But I wanted to uh, to move to, to this part of the presentation because there is here something uh, about these uh, emergent characteristics of the interactions between the state and uh, uh, protesters which I wanted to point at. Which are the causal mechanisms which uh, produce escalations in the relationship between uh, uh, social movements and the uh, police, some part of the movements and the police. Here I refer to a research presented in the book I mentioned in which I try to look at ways in which escalation happen in ethnic type of conflicts, the Basque countries, in uh, the radical left and the radical right in Italy, uh, and in uh, uh, religious type of fundamentalism. So to see if this uh, type of uh, phenomenon, which have always been explained through different lenses by different subfields of the social sciences, had something in common. 
And in terms of uh, the ways in which, at the onset, the interactions between the state and uh, the um, protesters developed, I found very similar type of uh, mechanisms. And in the last 10 minutes, I wanted to present these three type of mechanisms referring to different groups. In the, in the book, I try to demonstrate that all the groups follow the same path, but for the sake of time, uh, I wanted here to focus only on uh, some of these. Relational mechanism. I've studied uh, a, a very dramatic moment in Italian history in the 70s when very large uh, protest movements, labor movements, student movements, urban movements, and so on, uh, escalated into terrorist forms. Not all the movements, but uh, uh, the interactions with the states produced uh, radicalizations, and some groups went underground. And what I noted there was uh, the ways in which in interactions which lasted long years, protesters and police in their relations tended to adapt continuously to the tactics used by the others. In, in a way, the brutal behaviors on the one side produced and reproduced brutal actions on the others. And this happened through a sort of uh, development of instruments of self-defense. So if you perceive the state as attacking your rights, uh, you start to go to a demonstrations uh, uh, dressed up in a different ways, carrying different type of ways. And this is uh, a, a, a direct instrument of um, um, uh, escalation. Also, on the streets, uh, barricades are constructed, uh, concrete type of uh, uh, institutions developed in long-lasting interactions between protests and demonstrators. So, for instance, squatted places, squatted uh, houses became moments of intense conflicts. And institutions were built that uh, then allowed for the protection of the demonstrations from the police or also for uh, attack on the police. So martial bodies, for instance, were constructed. But also what I think was important in this uh, type of uh, evolution was the development of very intense moments, um, uh, emotions and rationality Emotion and cognitions have been often uh, counterposed. But I, uh, in um, nowadays reflections on social movements, there is more of a tendency to reflect also on the fact that uh, cognitions and emotions often go together. So that uh, uh, emotional feelings have also effects in terms of the ways in which you perceive the external uh, uh, reality. And um, uh, I found it, for instance, in uh, several accounts uh, of uh, uh, people who ended up in uh, the um, ETA, uh, Euskadi, ETA, Askatasuna, the Basque um, uh, ethnic uh, nationalist organizations, the way in which protest uh, repressed by the police or repressive uh, uh, attitudes by the police changed the perceptions 
the legitimacy, the visions that the activist had of the state itself. So feelings of injustice were created. These this have been very important also in nowadays waves of protest. Uh, people um, told uh, we couldn't, repression was so brutal, we could no longer stay at home. We felt uh, a moral shock. We felt we had to mobilize. And I think emotions here are combined uh, with uh, the um, visions which develops on uh, the uh, uh, states in particular. So interactions happen mainly with the police, but it is deeply the conceptions of the states which is uh, addressed. Uh, one Basque militant said, well, those who entered ETA uh, did it more more than for an ideology, it was because their hearts told them to. And I think these intense moments, like Gezi Park or like uh, Euromaidan, are also the moments in which these visions of the uh, state are developed. And uh, <coughs> cognitive type of mechanism are important in filtering uh, uh, this uh, emotional moment into a visions of uh, uh, the state, into the perceptions that uh, I take this from uh, uh, examples from Al Qaeda, the ways in which uh, uh, freedom fight uh, uh, identity tend to uh, develop, how uh, activists tend to perceive their actions as uh, the only possible way. Uh, to uh, react to injustice which have uh, uh, been done. How violence is justified in the beginning as a sort of uh, defense from unjust uh, reactions by the states and then tend to become uh, the main uh, uh, justification itself for the survival of uh, uh, the organization. Concluding. Um, what happened in all these cases, uh, I think that a common uh, type of development was that repression was used as a substitute for politics. So repression in all these cases uh, tended to be uh, uh, the only type of reactions by the state, and it was based uh, uh, on a sort of... Uh, increasing divergence between what the activists were claiming for and what the state was available to uh, offer. Um, sometimes policemen themselves uh, protest because they, uh, they say the politicians do not do uh, their business. Why I think this is the case, especially now. I think yeah, I would bridge it with the previous lecture. I think that the development of democracies nowadays is a development in which uh, citizens perceive uh, an uh, increasing mistrust toward institutions uh, which are not uh, doing what they were uh, promising to do and what they were doing in the past. 
So repression is also zero tolerance, and repression is also used uh, because uh, governments are not ready to listen to uh, uh, claims. And this is true uh, in uh, uh, hybrid regimes, in authoritarian regimes, but also more and more in democracies. Citizens are uh, listened to less and less. There is a conception uh, of democracies in which uh, uh, the dominance uh, is the dominance of uh, the markets and uh, the trust which needs to be conquered is the trust of the markets and citizens tend to be considered as um, troublemakers, uh, as uh, uh, um, not uh, uh, those uh, who can give ideas about what to do and should be listened to, but rather those uh, uh, who need to be controlled. And uh, this, however, enters in a sort of vicious cycle because uh, uh, repression, as I mentioned, uh, is not often producing uh, decline of protest, but rather is producing moral outrage. If you think about uh, 2011, so if you think uh, about uh, the Arab Spring, the Indignados protest, and so on, uh, escalation always happens following uh, intervention, repressive interventions by the police, uh, of uh, focus type of uh, uh, protest. And this is the path we are uh, following nowadays as well. And uh, this means uh, repression is insufficient. And uh, uh, repression increases political demands rather by the citizens rather than controlling them. What's, uh, the risk is, is that in these vicious cycles, uh, there is an escalation of actions and framing. I don't think we are in a situation in which we risk, again, the development of political violence like the one uh, that I studied in my country in the 70s. These social movements that uh, we saw acting between 2011 and 2013 are very strongly convinced about the values of non-violence. But what can happen and what uh, often happens in uh, the recent protest is that interactions in the street reduce at the same time the trust of the citizens in the states and the attempt of uh, uh, those in government to listen to citizens. And this can uh, indeed produce, if not an escalation in terms of developing uh, development of uh, high level of political violence or clandestine political violence, it could indeed uh, produce an escalation in terms of uh, declining quality of democracies. And I will stop here. Uh, well, thank you very much, um, Donatella, for covering a topic um, of such broad scope um, in such depth and, more importantly, in 45 or 50 minutes, which allows us time for questions. Can I just remind folks what a good question sounds like? It's a short, simple sentence that ends in an interrogation point, um, and uh, I encourage you to, to follow that format. 
What I will do is take them, to keep the momentum going, I'll take questions as pairs. So I'll take two questions and then allow you to answer them and then take another pair of questions. So I'll start at this end of the room with the gentleman here. It seems to me that a lot of the problems with civil unrest are when um, economics underlies the political ferment. How much is the problem fundamentally that we can no longer employ large numbers of you of young people from the middle ground of the population with severe economic competition from Asia? Good. And I'll move across the room this way. I saw some hands over here. Okay, so the gentleman here next to this yeah. The the situation that you describe in terms of the simple um, repressive response to violence sounded very descriptive of the British government's response to IRA violence in the in the seventies and eighties. Um, does your analysis suggest that the, with a different response, the peace process that started in the early nineties could have started earlier? Uh, which, which processes in the early 90s? You mean the, the I'm policy? thinking of the Good Friday Agreement in the early in 1992, 94. Yes. On on the economic side, I think that uh, uh, social conflicts are indeed increasing, uh, uh, and in many of these uh, cases uh, are um, cases in which. Uh, uh, the social conditions deteriorated dramatically. Um, Bosnia, 40% unemployment, uh, uh, Arab world, uh, very uh, low level of uh, employment for young people and so on. And uh, uh, indeed, these are problems that tend to produce movements uh, that uh, are, uh, by definition, more uh, radical in thinking. Um, but I don't think it is uh, the social problems alone. Uh, mobilizations and protests requires uh, not only grievances, but also symbolic and uh, um, organizational resources to organize. Uh, in, uh, in Europe, we are still in the beginning of this uh, type of process of mobilizations. In Latin America, it happened earlier on, also because uh, the waves of uh, neoliberal reforms were tested there before moving uh, uh, into Europe. And what happened there was that, indeed, many of these uh, shock therapies produced many angry people. But in the beginning, they produced not only angry people, uh, but also very different conditions for very, very difficult conditions for mobilized. Um, unemployment of the young people means also weakness of the unions, weakness of uh, general type of organizations. And people who are uh, unemployed uh, usually have more, more difficulties in funding uh, the physical space to organize, uh, and also the symbolic, um, Baudier talked of the uh, uh, droit de parole, the, the conceptions that you need to have to have the right of, spe speak, of speech. And uh, I think that uh, uh, what's happening in Latin America 
between the 80s and nowadays was a slow development of alternative forms of organizations. Uh, piqueteros, unemployed uh, uh, people were organized in different forms than those who worked uh, in uh, the uh, uh, factories. And you need time to develop these alternative forms of protest. Indignados organized um, los afectados para la hipoteca, those who had lost their home because uh, they had taken loans they could no, no longer repay. But this also took a long time because usually people who go bankrupt are not those who are more likely to claim their rights. So I think the social um, economic conditions are rape for uh, protest, are, uh, and uh, especially among young people in all these countries, it is especially youth unemployment, which is uh, very, very high. But I think that uh, it is not automatic because uh, at the same time these conditions also decrease the capacity of the people to mobilize. So you need to reinvent uh, ways uh, of protesting and convincing the people that they're not unemployed because of their own fault and that they've not lost the house because of their own fault. On the Irish, uh, uh, yes, I tried also, although my focus was ETA, the obvious case of comparison is Ireland. And uh, uh, there are some good books written on uh, the Irish case, uh, uh, and uh, it tends to reflect uh, the, the same type of uh, uh, causal mechanism. So uh, escalating policing, uh, um, what uh, uh, was considered to be outrageous uh, for Irish people, then made the conflicts uh, escalating. We don't have to forget that the civil rights movement developed in the beginning as a non-violent movement, uh, and that it's uh, gradually uh, lost the uh, non-violence uh, perspective uh, in the interactions with, uh, uh, with the uh, type of policing. And with the type of policing which, uh, while uh, the British police was usually considered as the good Bobby, uh, uh, civilized and so on, but in Ireland uh, followed more the colonial type of strategies. Then. The problem nowadays which I see is that uh, those strategies uh, which were used for the repression of the colonies are coming back in the center. In part, they are coming back in the centers used against uh, um, riots and uh, uh, rebellions of um, former uh, members of uh, the colonies, but uh, in part also because of uh, a similar type of um, conceptions uh, of exclusion. Um, the policing of protest in these new forms, zero tolerance, has been linked uh, to the development of a sort of um, uh, uh, new thinking strategies among the police, uh, uh, which is the so-called um, um, uh, uh, strategies of 
the enemy. So the idea is that more and more um, people who misbehave or are considered not to respect the law uh, are considered as enemies which have to be excluded. This was not the case in the past where uh, the, the type of policing also of minor disorders were, was based of, uh, on the idea of re-civilizing or re-socializing. But the penal law of the enemy has been studied by criminologists and lawyers as this sort of uh, uh, new uh, development in the relationship between the states and all the groups that the states con consider as dangerous. So the recreation of uh, ghettos, uh, red zones, and so on, follow this uh, uh, type of sort of uh, return of colonialist type of strategies in the policing of protest. Uh, let me take some questions from the left side of the room. No voices from the left. Okay. Uh, so gentlemen here at the front and then gentlemen there with his hand over there. We'll also have a lady if this is like a hand. Go ahead. Isn't it sort of fundamentally the case that uh, repression is an intrinsic part of the state in capitalist society, but is used most commonly where those capitalist economies are weakest? Uh, because if you look at, say, Portugal, Italy, Greece, uh, and Spain, um, to name the most important ones, these are cases where we have had uh, fascist regimes uh, in European countries, which uh, were a response to the, the inability of democracy to deal with the social conflicts at the time, because in all of these countries too, uh, it was where the working class and social movements were also uh, the strongest, and was why the state had to respond with fascism because democracy proved itself incapable of, of, of doing that. And, yes. Is, is there a distinction to be made between the, the role of the police and the role of the army? In some, <clears throat> is there a distinction to be made between the role of the police and the role the of the, the army? army? I think particularly of Egypt where you know, the role of the, the army seems to be to stand aside but then to intervene politically. And obviously that's the model of military intervention in a lot of uh, political situations, whereas the police are traditionally the, the agent of internal repression. And whether, you know, there are certain situations where the army may intervene to actually produce a less repressive situation, as, as in Egypt, for example. And can I also ask a supplementary? What about social media? Everybody, what, what about social media and the effects of social media? Thank you for these questions. Yes, I think that repression is indeed a type of reactions by states who don't know what else to do, but also who don't want to do otherwise. So it's always uh, attempt to uh, keep conflicts under control. But also there, I think it is not automatically determined by the uh, uh, type of economic conditions. Uh, it, the, in, uh, in social movement studies, for a long period, uh, police and the policing of protest was not studied because the idea was it 
derives automatically from the state. So the police does what the state wants, uh, and the state is uh, either the long arm of capitalism or anyhow represent uh, some specific groups. But what we have seen is that even within Southern European countries, uh, countries um, uh, which have experiences with authoritarian regimes and so on, changes can happen. So Germany also had an authoritarian regimes, but the type of uh, uh, organizations of the police, the type of reform they had, federalism and uh, uh, other type of uh, uh, evolutions in the police itself uh, produced a different type of uh, strategies, a different type of styles. So this brings me to the pictures I couldn't show. I, I will not look at the uh, single aspects. But I would say, yes, it is true, the political opportunities are very important. Uh, eventually, uh, it is the government who says uh, in very important, in Gezi parks, what you have to do. But it is not only that. For instance, uh, uh, when we started to study the police, we discovered that you have a much more pluralist body than uh, one would expect. Also with conflict inside. We were studying the Turkish police. And there there is a, a very strong division between the civilian part of the police, uh, which comes from uh, uh, universities, studies abroad and so on, and this idea of more civilized police, and the rank and file, who is uh, um, not paid well, uh, exploited, and so on. The type of police schools are also important. In Italy, a change happened uh, in the early 80s. After, in the 70s, the police themselves started to protest because they wanted the unions and because they wanted better conditions. And this tended to change the type of uh, um, policing strategies. Uh, um, not 100%, but training of the police, conceptions of uh, the police is also important. And um, I think that it was a main mistake of the Italian left that didn't consider this importance of a reform of the police in order to change the strategies on the street. Uh, you have order by the governments, but in uh, many circumstances, the governments either doesn't want to say exactly what to the police what they have to do. Uh, in Genova in 2001, what was called uh, uh, in, in the heavy repression of the global justice movement in Genova. The police had the impression that the state was on their side, but they didn't receive really an order. So I think that it is true they are related uh, to uh, the uh, political conditions and uh, to the um, repression of conflicts, but this doesn't mean that it is an automatic reaction and that the police doesn't have uh, degrees of uh, uh, autonomy. So what we have interviewed many uh, policemen in, um, because protest is also an everyday uh, uh, event. 
And uh, in most of the cases, they didn't have specific order. They were um, street-level bureaucrats, to use uh, the, the terms uh, uh, used in um, admin studies on uh, uh, administrative administration, which means they had to assess the situation while they were on the streets. And from their assessment of the degree of legitimacy of the protesters and the protest, the degree of support for the protesters and the protest, came also their choices of uh, um, how to react. And this, uh, this I think, was uh, uh, important. The police and the army... Uh, they, they tend to behave in different ways, but not consistently, in the sense that it depends also historically how they developed in various countries. The military in particular can have progressive tendencies. Let's think about Portuguese revolution, for instance, but also the Bolivian military in the 60s and so on. But they can have also the most radical, exclusive type of tendency. So the most brutal dictatorship are usually the military type of regimes. Uh, in, for the military and for the army, what tends to be problematic in their use in public order is that they tend to be more uh, um, militaristic in their outfit and in their training. Uh, in many countries, it's only men. In many countries, they are, uh, uh, live in barracks. Uh, and uh, their attitudes is the attitudes of an uh, army. So, for instance, in Genova, in this infamous uh, repression uh, of the protests during the G8, it was especially the uh, military, the carabinieri, uh, which intervened in the most violent ways. This doesn't make the police always uh, uh, better, though, because, as you mentioned, in other cases, uh, you can have very um, different type of uh, assets. So in some countries, indeed, the police is the arm of the government and the military represent the state. But, uh, but it is complex and it changes uh, in, uh, in different countries, also sometimes related with the strategies of uh, the governments and so on. If we think about Libya or about Syria, uh, the ways in which the control of the army has developed has been different in, in, uh, uh, in the different countries. Social media. Social media, I think, had a quite important type of effects in producing a different visions of uh, uh, repression. In uh, um, usually research on uh, the ways in which journalists, so the mass media, cover protest. It's uh, singled out the sort of um, bias of journalists always being protected behind the blue line of the police. So always giving uh, the visions of the protest uh, that they get through the eyes of the police, through that part of the barricades. Social media have changed a lot this because they have uh, meant that uh, 
for the Arab Spring, uh, but also in many other cases, the protesters themselves could upload uh, documents which were taken on the other side of the blue line. And this, I think, has produced many um, positive effects in terms of pluralism, and very often also the mass media have then used social media because they uh, they were considered to be good sources uh, of uh, information. And so, of course, you, you may have all the problems which are often related with the social media, for instance, the fact that you never know uh, how much of the information is reliable. Uh, so uh, some uh, uh, type of uh, media tend also to give a sort of assessment about the uh, credibility of some types of documents. But, but I think that all in all, the uh, effect of social movements in denouncing uh, uh, repression through images uh, has been very uh, relevant. And in fact, I think that uh, it had changed with the Web 2.0 uh, uh, new technologies because they allowed a much more direct and immediate uploading. Good. All right, let me try to fix my perceived gender bias. So, uh, lady at the front, and I had caught the lady on the corner, the AM there next. Um, I just wondered to what extent you think timing is important when it comes to police escalation because for example uh, in Occupy Wall Street they're evicted very quickly and, and quite harshly um, and arguably they have gone on to do more than in the London case where they were there for months but the protest just petered out and has arguably come to nothing so I just wondered what, to what extent you think it's advantageous for the protest um, in terms of the timing of the police escalation <laughs> And it was the lady on the corner holding the phone. Hi, thank you very much for your presentation, Donatella. My name's Andrea. I have been working for the last two, you know, since the very beginning of Occupy London in the welfare working group, yeah. And I just wanted to uh, raise an issue. I have to put my glasses on so I can see properly. <laughs> yes, I, I, I would need also some yes. glasses. Um, basically, I want to raise the issue as, at the moment, the state as criminal, because we're now in a situation as activists and in the Occupy movement everywhere, I mean, many, many of us now, where every now and again, you know, it is exposed that, you know, for example, the undercover cops who were sleeping with the women and they had babies with them and now up in um, Barton Moss where we're protesting the fracking uh, one of our people was beaten brutally because he was just trying to tell the policeman that the number plate on the back of one of the uh, trucks that was going in to support the fracking was actually uh, an illegal number plate yeah? so you know Chris was just you know police officer can you, can you check this number plate because I think it's not a legal one and he got brutalized, and, you know, I hope that he sues their butts. But anyway, the point is how, you know, because at the moment, even though we can say it's only a few people, it does look like that the neoliberalists are actually held up by criminals, to me, anyway, for what it's worth. Thank you. It's a supplementary question. If it's directly on the point, yes. 
Essentially, when I heard what you've been discussing, you've given a whole range of different protest movements, some of which are actually quite special interest, if you like, and some of them really tip over to wider social kind of movements that go cross, across a number of spectrums. What have you found to be common causes of either of the two, if any? Yes, <clears throat> about the timing... Um it, it is important, and uh, um, research on the policing of protest has always been uh, um, trying uh, to address uh, this puzzle I mentioned before. Why is it the case that sometimes uh, repression is successful uh, and why uh, uh, instead sometimes it is not? And uh, uh, the timing of the repression is always uh, is often been considered as a potential explanation. So when uh, protests are stopped in the beginning, uh, uh, um, repression tend to be more successful uh, than when it intervened in, uh, in a second moment. Um, the, this is tendentially true, but I think that uh, in most of uh, uh, the cases I've been looking at, um, you have the impressions of a protest which is suddenly emerging, but usually it comes from a longer-lasting uh, uh, conflict. So what I mean is that uh, singling out the timing is difficult because usually it's a sort of uh, chain of uh, uh, development. And, uh, uh, and I think that's uh, what also counts and uh, um, sometimes it has uh, not been considered, especially for authoritarian states, is the degree on co of constraints on repressions. So the fact that uh, um, in certain moments, so related with timing, uh, even brutal dictators could have maybe not enough resources to, uh, to control protest, for instance, at the periphery. So you had Tunisian uh, revolution started in the periphery with difficulties to control uh, there. In Libya also, the situation was such that some areas were more difficult for the dictators to control. Um, there is an uh, interesting book by Vincent Boudreau who studied repression in authoritarian regimes in uh, uh, Eastern Asia. And what he saw was that, that very often this type of resources for Burman uh, or uh, for uh, uh, Indonesian regimes are not sufficient to control uh, movements which developed uh, in some specific area. So I think it's a mix of timing, but also of the spaces. And very often, uh, uh, the uh, regimes, even authoritarian, even very brutal regimes, are not able to control a movement in the mov in the moment in which they should, because of these resources. And um, uh, I, I think. These questions went a bit back to also to the questions of uh, uh, um, which type of uh, uh, movements uh, uh, are developing nowadays against uh, which type of uh, um, uh, regimes and the type of states which is uh, uh, um, particularly 
under attack uh, and um, uh, reacting in a non-democratic way. That is what is the nature of uh, this type of conflicts which make also uh, repression uh, more likely. And I think that uh, this is uh, uh, indeed an important question which I tried to uh, address uh, at the end. States are becoming, even in democracy, less and less uh, tolerant towards protest uh, because they perceive that the protests are all the more challenging the less they feel uh, to be legitimated. Protest used to be considered as uh, a, a means and um, instruments of the weak. Uh, uh, people, but considering that they were marginal groups of the populations. Nowadays, one uh, of the characteristics of many of these protests I mentioned is that they very quickly get uh, large support among the population. So opinion polls in Spain said 80% of the Spaniards were supporting the Indignados movement. Uh, 75% in uh, Ukraine, large majorities also in uh, Turkey. And the reasons why sometimes uh, small localized movements explode in this way, developed in these ways, is uh, because indeed they meet uh, uh, governments which have very low level of support. All the indicators in uh, uh, comparative politics in terms of uh, uh, a degree of support for, for institutions indicate a drastic drop. So uh, we did um, surveys and demonstrations, also of trade unionist uh, moderate groups. Trust in political parties and parliaments were around 6%, 10% of the people. So the um, governments perceive these difficulties in uh, uh, getting uh, resources of uh, legitimacy. And so perceive this type of protest, even the small one, even the one which start on uh, uh, should we construct something in Gezi parks, is extremely challenging. And I think they indeed become extremely challenging uh, because they can rely uh, upon very delegitimated regimes. And this not only in authoritarian regimes, but also in the heart of uh, uh, Europe, where uh, you find the same type of, uh, of processes. Um, even in the 80s, uh, governments were more tolerant uh, about protest because they tended rather to consider it as, uh, as um, symptomatic of specific claims uh, uh, and so on. Now the, the say, reservoir of legitimacy uh, of uh, uh, institutions, uh, representative institutions, is, I think, so low that uh, the overreaction is also related to the perceptions that uh, any type of protest can uh, explode into a crisis of legitimacy or represent a crisis of legitimacy. We have time for, I think, a last round of questions. Um, I know you had your hand up, so uh, over here, and then from the left side of the room, gentleman in the white shirt. Thank you. Thank you, Darren, you. for that excellent presentation. Uh, you've talked a lot about the spiraling up of conflict and violence. I just wonder 
if you could speak to how do we spiral some of this down? How, how do you spiral some of it down? What yeah. are some of the causal ways of reducing yeah. And we give a microphone to the gentleman here. Thank you. Is perhaps this, um, in fact, a crisis of legitimacy? And is oligarchy a useful word to describe much of what we're talking about? Is democracy, in fact, not a good description? I think the two last questions are also related. Uh, Because um, technically... It is possible to spiral down these type of escalations, uh, given also um, the existence uh, uh, from the technical point of view, logistic point of view, uh, of um, police strategies which we know function in, in the past. So, um, pol- uh, in the conflicts of the 70s and the 80s, uh, police strategies have been uh, devised and experimented with, which could produce de-escalations. For instance, uh, uh, the police is um, aware that uh, some forms of uh, interventions uh, tend to uh, um, receive uh, outraged reactions that uh, uh, instead uh, if uh, the police is uh, in some circumstances either less visible or uses different types of uh, outfit. This is also important. The militarization has been a lot also militarizations of the images. The police is also successful in many occasions in uh, controlling uh, protest without getting escalation. So I think the strategies is, uh, uh, are there. Plus what we have learned from the past is that uh, it is important the training of the police. It is important uh, what the police is told is their role. If it is uh, zero tolerance or if it is uh, democracy. Uh, uh, And um, so I think that from the point of view uh, of uh, the technicalities of it, there are uh, a, a lot of strategies which have worked in the past when uh, conflicts were uh, rather more difficult to address because there was more violence. While these movements, uh, from certain point of view, are less difficult to uh, police because they are mainly non-violent. They immediately tend to calm down uh, those uh, who use uh, violence. But the problem is, I, I think, the crisis of legitimacy in uh, nation, domestic and transnational terms. Because uh, something uh, I've not said, but uh, uh, could say in these uh, last three minutes, is that uh, uh, these uh, strategies of uh, escalation rather than de-escalations moved transnationally. And they moved in part because uh, of uh, neoliberal globalizations, which uh, imposed the same types of claims uh, upon people in the different parts of the world. 
because uh, many decisions are perceived to be as uh, decisions which are less and less legitimated from the point of view of the <coughs> traditional electoral accountabilities. For Greek for the Greek population, for the uh, um, Portuguese or the Spaniards, uh, they, those who are directly responsible for their suffering uh, are sitting outside of the elected institutions. And uh, also the policing of protest is spread transnationally, um, sometimes through a partnership, uh, sometimes through the writing uh, of a handbook for the policing of transnational protest, sometimes through uh, the training uh, of uh, uh, police officers in similar places, but especially through the spreading of these, uh, so the theorizations of this sort of zero tolerance. And I think that this is... Uh, related with the crisis of um, legitimacy, which is in some way similar, but in some way also different from the one that Jürgen Habermas described for the 70s. Like in the 70s, it is a linkages between uh, um, economic crisis and uh, uh, crisis in terms of political legitimacy. But the ones that uh, Habermas described for the 70s was most, uh, more related with the Fordist type of state. Intervention by the states uh, that uh, transformed the equilibrium of the market. I think that nowadays uh, this crisis is more a crisis of the responsabilizations of the states. So um, states are perceived to be corrupted. So when uh, I did research on the movements of 2011, 2012, 2013, a terms which emerged over and over again was the corruption of the political class. It's not that the movements uh, of the global justice movement didn't believe that the political class was somehow compromised, but they didn't use the terms corruption. I think uh, the um, accusations to the political class of being corrupted uh, by the increasing interactions between the uh, politics and the market is um, uh, emerging and spreading now and it is very much related to these uh, 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 perceptions that the states, Colin Crouch wrote once, uh, are not all not longer able, no longer able to do what they used to do very well in the past. So they've given up competencies. They've given up uh, responsabilizations for uh, what is going on. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they've been very strongly punished for this by the citizens. So, uh, and I think that in these circumstances it is very difficult to reconstruct uh, linkages of um, uh, trust between uh, citizens and the states. Latin America could be a place to look at because uh, uh, it happened that uh, uh, crisis related with uh, shock therapies uh, by uh, neoliberal uh, governments 
were um, interrupted and there was the emergence of um, more uh, uh, attention to social protections. But uh, to which extent uh, uh, this uh, will uh, continue in uh, Latin America, look, thinking about protests in Brazil, and to which extent uh, 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 they can be considered, these movements, as uh, uh, successful in proposing an alternative, I think is still open. Good. Well, I think all that remains is to thank Professor Della Botta for sharing her knowledge, experience, and wisdom with her this evening. And we look forward to the next time when you return. Thank you, Thank you very much.